Howdy. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we got our names right, and you know why? Why? Because this is the 20th time we've done this, and oh, not only is it episode number 20, guess what else? What, Alan? What? I'll tell you. <laughs> it's been uh, almost exactly a year since our very first A-B testing podcast. Yep. Our first one was released March 31st, and it is beyond that. A one week beyond that. Yes. We are so, one more. High five. I, ow! Okay, all right. I, that, that was unplanned for and unprepared for, <laughs> but we're good. And Brent was telling me if we would have been super prepared, we would have done a fancy retrospective on the year. But we're going to save that for like 25 or some other – something down the road when we actually – Put some prep time into our episode. Yeah, we'll we can continue to tell you guys. Oh, we'll do that next time. Uh, but those who have been paid attention, we don't actually remember what we left over. Yeah, for next we time. don't really have <laughs> something like a long term format. It would be wouldn't that be like weird? Like if we had like this 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 strategy of what happens and what show and what sets up the thing in the next show and this big long. Like I'm imagining, you know, in the police shows when they have like the pictures and the strings everywhere of the trying to investigate the crime. Yes, we don't have that. We do not. We should do that. Just like random, like like books and pictures of people and things, and just rant. Maybe not. No, Brent says Brent's giving me the Alan shut I, up eye. I think we would need to have a reason. <laughs> oh yeah, the like the, the the ROI of of uh, of that. Well, it must be good. We we have by all signs we have uh, still kept our three listeners. Yes, and Jim Moore is one of them. You know Jim Moore? I do. Jim Moore. He um I've heard he uses something called a um, a poop snorkel. <laughs> How does that work? I have no idea, but he asked me to use the word in the podcast, so I guess um, it's one of his favorites. Okay. All right. Moving on. Those who know Jim, no one. Now, uh, that's not a surprise in any way, shape, or form. All right, and you can just email him at uh, poopsnorkel at microsoft.com. Yes. All right, moving on past that, I'm a big fan of logical fallacies. Do you know what logical fallacies are, Brent? Actually, my, I, I should. It's too early in the morning. Coffee's not kicking in yet. Yeah, I had three shots of tequila on the way. No, I did not. I did not, and I was going to bring the tequila, and as I looked up bleary-eyed on a Monday morning at... 7.45 a.m. when I was getting ready to go to work, I thought, no, not going to happen. So we're going to drink coffee shots while we do our 20th episode today. I'm remembering, going back to logical fallacies, I'm remembering... Oh, yeah, I brought that up, didn't we I? Had a, we had a mutual friend of ours came in to to tag, gosh, a long time ago and walked through a, a presentation. Oh, oh, I forgot. That, that was uh, uh, Jeff Weston, Jeffrey Weston, right? Yeah. And then uh, my son... He learned logical fallacies in his uh, history class for some reason last year, and so he's he's a big fan of of trying to use logical fallacies to win arguments with. Well, I think that makes sense because history is, of course, about learning about the past, but it's also you learn a lot of critical thinking, and logical fallacies I think line up very well with critical thinking. Yes, they do. All right. So anyway, logical fallacies are when you... That implies history lines up with critical thinking. When you use non-logical thinking to assume... This is not the Wikipedia or Wiktionary or whatever definition, but the easiest way to put it is you think you're using logic, but you're not. Or you think you have the right answer, but you're not. You're using... um, The basis of which you draw your conclusion is not based on actual logic. 
What's an example, Alan? Let me give you some examples. There's one I see all the time, in, um, especially in testing and software circles in general, which can be uh, mm. referred to often as the anecdotal fallacy or more often one I see I like to call the hasty generalization. And we see this in data all the time. This ties over to data quite a bit, the hasty generalization. The hasty generalization is when I get a little bit of data from a small sample set and I make a grand generalization about that data. You ever seen that, Brent? I have quite a few times. And it's often very wrong. Although on the other side, I also see the reverse where, oh, no, no, you, we, we can't trust the data until we have a hundred percent calculation of all the data because because uh, you may not be counting the the extremes that sort of uh, aligns with my point yeah of there's view. probably a name for that I'll, in spur of the moment i'm going to call that the inappropriate completeness fallacy sure sure i just made that name up somebody write in and correct me so now now i got a theme i there's a couple of them uh that i'll share with you and i've actually had high level people share these with me in a serious conversation. Hey, uh, Brent? Yeah. You know, I never actually got to an example of a hasty oh, didn't generalization. You? No, I talked about oh, what they sorry. were. So I'm going to I'm I'm let you finish. I'll finish after you. I asked you for But Beyonce example. had a great album last year. Okay. I- so uh, Brent, who has no clue at all about pop culture, just I, missed that completely. I actively avoid it. All right, Taylor. Let's go on. But- <laughs> Are you going to shake it off? Is that what you're saying? I'm going to shake something. So what's your example, Alan? So what I see all the time is uh, I'll do one from like 10 years ago at Microsoft. Actually, no, I'll do one from this weekend. Someone who was a tester, former tester at Microsoft, all of his friends were testers at Microsoft, um, made a generalization that Microsoft laid off all their testers last summer, to which he was informed that no, actually they let off. Yeah. Some testers got laid off, but actually every discipline, every role from HR to marketing to finance to engineering were affected. He said, well, all my friends that got laid off were testers. Nice. Hasty generalizations. Yep. A good example. It happens a lot with, uh, I talked to someone a few years ago. He said that, um, some weird assumption about managers at Microsoft. Well, he said, I, I forget what it was. I said, why would you think that? He says, well, I, I have a friend who's a manager at Microsoft, and he told me. So that's a very, and, that, and that really falls in the anecdotal fallacy. Maybe it's or or it's one data point. I guess it's I don't know which. I don't know where to draw the line between the two. That, that but, last one I've encountered quite a bit. <laughs> one of the things, well, as a manager at Microsoft, but um, a lot of times the the a pattern I discovered is that the people who are sharing this are are often in Microsoft and had been on their team for, say, the last 10 years or so. And they operate under the assumption that how their team functions is actually how all of Microsoft oh, functions. Oh, that's a very good one, too, yeah. Right? Um, I, I actually have a habit, and, I, and you do as well, kind of changing jobs every, every two to four years. So in, in my career here, I don't even know how many different groups I've been on. And I've noticed, no, different teams... A very distinct absolutely, cultures. absolutely. I've it, even watched it's gotten, my- to, gotten to a point now. Uh, as as we talked, I'm on a new team, and one of the first things that I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out what is the culture of this team. Like uh, certain things, like okay, how are they going to do the review process? Because that changes 
team by team. Yeah. How how are they going to decide the goals? The the other one is which discipline is dominant. The, um, generally, it's either the dev discipline or the PM discipline that kind of rules that organization. I don't know which one of those it is yet. I agree completely that there are every team at Microsoft does things differently and. By talking to one team about what they do, making a generalization about Microsoft is pretty far-fetched. And that's – it seems I'm a very logical person, I would like to think sometimes. But it just seems it, – it pushes my button when someone makes a, a, a generalization about the company based on one bit of information. When it's uh, – I got us off in the weeds here. I'm sorry. Keep no, going. No, no. I, I, I like this topic. Um a generalization that's the, sort of the wrong granularity, right? They're making a generalization that's sort of that's true in a certain context within the company. Absolutely, but they're broadening it up to the whole company. Like the the uh, a valid generation uh, generalization for Microsoft is we make software. Yes, that's a valid generalization. Uh, an invalid one: all PMs write code. Totally. Uh, although I've been on teams where PMs did. There's a couple of them that I remember when you brought this up uh, from the old days. Um, I'll save the best one for last. I've actually had an argument with devs in, in, the, in the, the, the throes of us trying to ship. Right, It's always that crunch period. This is back in the, the multiple disciplines um, phase where there was a test discipline and the dev discipline. Yeah, because Microsoft doesn't do testing anymore. Right. Uh, not at all. <laughs> Actually, if you read some of our uh, the analysis of some recent products, uh, there might be some confirmation of that. There may be, there may be confirmation <laughs> as well as logical fallacies in there. Yes. Anyway, I've actually had people um, in the heat of the moment actually tell me that if it weren't for test, there'd be no bugs. As if to say, test is the one that causes the bugs? Indirectly, you could say that. But we're the ones... But but the statement as itself is true. If it weren't for test, there'd be no bugs filed. At least, <laughs> at least no bugs found before a ship. Right. Um, but my favorite one, this was years ago, where... I was on a team who owned the stress and performance and, and load. We had multiple directors to test. I had one call me that was not in my management chain, and he had had it with me. He was frustrated. He wanted to call me and get on the same page because he was concerned that I was continuing as I, as I found holes. I was continuing to add test cases to my stress suite. Okay, beyond uh, the test complete date. This was one of the few oh, teams in oh my Jesus. career that actually I, I, had a test. Complete I've been date. on a team that had a test complete date. It okay. was, yeah, um, I laughed at it at the time. Said, "Okay, whatever. We'll we'll scroll it on the calendar." And and he said, "And I remember <laughs> you this. You can't con- keep testing." <laughs> I remember this conversation like yesterday. He called me on the phone. And he was trying to be diplomatic and trying to um, convince me to his point of view. He's like, Brent, if you keep adding tests past the test complete date, 
you'll find bugs, and that will cause us to slip. Now, I want to remind you and our audience that this was one of the directors of test. The and I said, well, the logic makes sense, of course, absolutely. the The thing I said, and I, I brought out. Um, first off, because I didn't report to him, so I wanted to to not dance around the topic. I said, look, my job is to do the best to find bugs before our customers do. Your job, and I didn't say it this bluntly, close though, I said, it is the decision of shiproom of which you attend, not me, to decide whether or not the bugs that I file are worth slipping. Right, I am enabling you guys to make a decision as to whether or not it's worthwhile to do this risk. Right, I feel like you're calling me saying that you believe that I'm victimizing your team or, or the product when in fact what I am attempting to do is, is find critical issues before the customer does. Because if the customer finds these issues, uh, our particular product, it's four months before you can do a re-release. So if, if if I find if I add new test cases, which I'm going to do, I'm going to continue to do, even past we sh- uh, ship, and they file bugs, all right, they find bugs. It's your call to decide whether or not it's worth holding. Well, this is interesting, and I don't know if this is a staying on the logical fallacy topic. I'm not sure if this is a logical fallacy or a, or what to call this, but I still see this sort of thing today in his head. He's enforcing policy. Right. He said, well, we have, co- we have tests complete, so we're done testing. And you're doing things that are out of policy. I had a situation last week where um, I, I'm, I'm quickly uh, moderating in my head, but we had all of our builds break. Every build fail due to a policy change. And, so in, and the, the policy was valid, but it broke everything. And I contacted the team that enforced the policy. I said, hey – we need to find another way to deal with this because your current implementation breaks all of our builds. And they said, "Did you have a heads up on the policy change?" We did. We did. Okay. And uh, we didn't actually know it was going to break us or not. I said, "Let's turn it on. Let's let's see if, if if the change breaks us, and we'll back it out if not." And turned it on. It broke. I emailed them. I said, "Hey, we're broken. Please re- please revert." They said, "We can't revert. It's policy." So wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. I didn't take I, I, I reiterated the fact uh, we don't have builds. We have you know, we have a dozen repos we're building in all CI and all none of them are working. So I no. w- one more email said, okay, we'll turn them back on. And, and they're back on. I sent an email and I said, Hey, things are working, thank you. I said, okay, now that we've confirmed that the policy is in fact the issue, we're going to turn it back off. I said, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. But it's policy. And it went on, it's a little bit like Spinal Tap, our amps go to 11. And the policy is not turned on right now. Uh, we are going to uh, get an exception or a worker. It, it, our builds are not going to break. They, they finally got through their head, those are important. But it's another case where, and this happened almost every team I've, I can probably recall dozens of examples of enforcing the policy overrides doing the right thing. And that's kind of what happened in your case. And then one other, uh, two other stories that your story in, reminded me of is I was on a team once where half joking but half serious too, 
they the director said we should send the testers home so we don't find as many bugs. <laughs> I, they were half joking, but I don't think they were all the way joking. And then, then my favorite story is uh, see that. Like, what's the policy do you think that they're doing? Is it just, oh, in order to ship, I we have to be bug-free? I don't know. I think they were trying to get to maybe um, down to a certain bug count. They wanted to fix the bug curve. So incoming wasn't as high as fix rate. And I think and they did. this is one of those things. This, yeah, and sure. So let but me tell I you think, one more I think more they're story. targeting the wrong goal, it's right? easy they, to – yes. Think – and this is for leadership as well as those – wanting to inform leadership i think it's important to keep track of the goal you're shooting for uh i was on a team once where the dev team was way behind uh they were writing very poor code and they all decided that they were going to come in their director said we're going to come in on the weekend we're going to we're going to make some progress here get ourselves under control and they're great and the developer said well what do you mean the test team isn't coming in aren't we aren't we just one team and said all right fine test team we're gonna come in we didn't feel like we were behind but we came in and damn it if the dev team didn't leave their weekend of work with more bugs than they started with be careful what just, you ask for just, but again we wanted the we need to have team camaraderie but and really what we needed was um a culture change mm-hmm. and that wasn't going to happen over the weekend but look we dug ourselves a hole and Getting out of that hole isn't always the easiest thing in the world. Now, and, and triggering and triggering really, weekend time is, yeah. is right because everyone just wants to get done so they can go back home and spend time with their families. The the, the um, forcing weekend time is a great way to assure system thinking does not happen during that period of time. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, um, I almost want to jump to our fourth topic. You said I'm, you had another story. Oh, that was, that was both of them. One was... Oh, okay. What, there, were, there were two in there. Okay. Uh, when you go back and listen to this... I'll, I'll detect the segue. Yeah, you can, you can get those. <laughs> so uh, we get this question. Uh, not, I'm not going to call this a mailbag question. But we, do get, we had a question a few weeks ago on, you know, what do test specialists do at Microsoft? And then a little variation on that. I had someone come to my office last week and ask me a question that wasn't the first time I've heard this question. It's more like, it wasn't even the second, more like the 10th. And it's going to lead to a discussion that I'd like you to have with me. If you can take that journey with me, Brett, I will do my best. (laughs) He came to me and he said, Hey, um, the story went like this. He said, I, I got to talk to you. I said, what's up? Because I do a lot of coaching, mentoring, what I call uh, uh, test therapy. Well, I'm sorry. We don't have testers. Engineering therapy. Uh, he said, I really love my job. I well, love what I'm I doing. I love that term. Engineering therapist? No, test therapy. Yeah. Okay. I, I've, haven't I used that before here? No. Uh, it's my, it's, it should be my full-time job. Are you a testologist? That's, no. It sounds wrong, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, anyway, now that I have awkward thoughts in my head, I all right. He came to my office. Said he's on a, combi- a combined word. I hate a unified engineering team. An engineering team. A team where, oh my God, there are no testers. The sky is falling. He says, "I." He's a former tester. He says, "I love my job. I love what I'm doing. I work with great people. The technology is freaking awesome." He says, "But the work I'm doing is I'm 
doing a lot of infrastructure work and, and making sure our inner and outer loop tests, our short tests and our long tests are running and kind of making sure everything sticks together, which in my head was, yep, this is the, this is the value that the test specialist brings to the team. It's systems thinking, it's generalization, it's making sure the big picture all works together. It's the kind of crap I love too. And he says, and my manager, very supportive, really likes me. Then I have my skip level. Uh, and he said, and my, and my skip level said, you know, really like the work you're doing. Uh, but you don't really have a feature to hang your hat on. And Brent made the sound that went off in my head. I said, well, that's interesting. And I think a big transition teams need to make when they go to a team of disciplines to specializing generalists and generalizing specialists is that not everyone on the team, the counting developer productivity by counting features completed is no longer the right math. Actually, it never was the right math, but it cannot be the right math. You cannot build, in my opinion, I know I've talked about this, a quality product when everybody is just a plain old feature developer. You, Those people that can be the glue to make everything stick together and define the holes, etc., the former testers, the people with that test or system thinking or critical thinking mindset, those are the people that are critical, in my opinion, to your to the success of your product. So it was interesting that, and again, in this case, it falls back to his management chain is very much uh, work item-driven development. Everything, your the bugs are count, they're not even considered. It's very much... Uh, getting features done is how you're counted and how you're how you're valued on the team. Uh, I have a lot of opinions on this, but with that set up, I'll just kind of see where you are, Brent. If you're still with me, Brent's furiously yep. scrawling notes I am on writing. the little posties. I'm not sure if he can read his writing or if he knows which order he wants to talk about them in. But Brent, I will make it up as usual. Of course, you will. So this very well aligns. With our theme today, we have a th- holy wait yeah. wait pause. We have a theme. It does. We oh. do. All right, go on. Our th- the um, go us. So we talked about generalizations. Now we're talking about generalists, generalists. right? And later, generally, <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> speaking of which, so you've seen those commercials where they replace the general Lee with like uh, like Corvette or something like that. It's so easy to bring you off target. It totally is. I just find I can't put my finger on it, but there's something wrong that I just don't like about the new car. Anyway. All right. Okay, going on. So the team I just left, they're having actually a struggle. And one of the struggles, there was a non-trivial battle for about a month um, around uh, – so let me wind back a second – the team I left, just before I left, they did a merge. They had a, a number of people who have understanding of Agile, and they got another 50% of people who really didn't have an understanding, and a good portion of them came from the dev work. Okay? And what you just called out is this, this feature idea. The, the dev management is trained that the way you differentiate people is by what features did they build and how important were those features or how complex were those features, right? So the review process in the dev org is sort of, in my view, a dysfunctional supporting loop 
for the specialist. Mm-hmm. We want deep specialization. We want um, those specializations to continue to be valuable, right? Um, and my least favorite one is specialists get rewarded for their ability to handle the complexity of a particular feature area, regardless of how it got complex. <laughs> right? I, I've been on teams where where a, a developer was the only guy who understood this code, and he was the only one who wrote that code for the last five years, and now it's hacktastic. And he's getting rewarded for over the period of five years of building crap. Um, it, you can think of it as it's not really rewarded, but it's sort of um, specialization blackmail. I got away it's with job this. security. No one else knows how this works. And no one wants to unwind it. Um, and, and no one can. There's often a window of opportunity. We, we are going to need seven years to fix all the hacks that you put in over the last five years. Mm-hmm. But no one's having that conversation. We've all seen that code. My yeah. entire career I've seen that. I, I know that person. I know that, in general, that person. And I know that code. The difference between, in this context, the difference between the generalization, the generalists and the specialists, and we, we've agreed multiple occasions now that we don't like either of these guys, but the difference between... In, in the model that we have right now, specialists have something concrete that they can um, put their hat on. And the generalists, because they're evaluating the system, it's not concrete. It's well, hard to measure. It's hard to – at a review cycle. Uh, I'm known for being a change agent. I can talk to a bunch of people. Every team I've, I've left in the last four teams has been extremely sad to see me go – because they know how I have helped change the culture, and they know that I, how they know subjectively from a personal standpoint that I've accelerated them and the culture. But you can't measure that crap. Well, not well everything I mean, has you to don't, be. You can, but no one does. Not you're you're right. And many, many, many podcasts ago, I talked about you know, how I value people on my teams. And I, again, I don't manage people, but I put a lot of effort into thinking, how do we value these people? And I think the traditional dev programming manager uh, mindset is I value you based on output and maybe the difficulty of that output. Maybe those two factors. That's a little, little bit of a twist and summary of what you just said. Yeah. So how what did you get done? How hard was it to do? It's size, complexity, and date. <laughs> Hitting your ship date regardless of the quality on that date. Uh, whereas I, you know, working mostly with test teams in my career, uh, I am looking at output. Output is something I value. I'm also looking at there's like three or four things that I'm really going to make sure that you do. One is output. You're getting work done Two, business impact of that output. I've seen a lot of people do go off on researchy science project kind of things that are really complex, really hard, but don't really impact how the team does work. And business impact can be bottom line on the software product. It can be engineering efficiency on the team. And then the other really important one is how well do you work and help with others? Uh, and that's where the generalist 
can show some value. The person who's more of a generalist is going to have lots of that. You go, well, I helped that here and I helped that here and I did this and I helped these people work together. And as you know, at Microsoft at least, we don't have a good any system really for measuring peer feedback or how well others perceive you. Uh, and, and that blocks that a lot. So you have to do a lot. You have to, as a manager, instead of spending your time in the work item tracking system, looking at who's getting what features done, instead, as a people manager, you actually have to interact with people instead of your damn tools in order to figure out how your team's doing. And to me, it's not rocket science. And I had a, I had our, I don't want to single people out. I had a director of dev come to me once and say, if we are doing things in a more agile manner and we're doing things like you're talking about, Alan, how do I hold my devs accountable? How do I know if, you know, who is, who is pulling their weight and who's not? I said, look, get your head out of the work item tool. If as a manager, Mm -hmm. so you're, you're, you're director port. If they don't know how everybody on their team is doing, and these aren't large teams, if they don't have an idea of who's pulling their weight and who's not outside of the work item tracking tool, they're not going to know inside. You need to get your head out and pay attention to people. I kind of crawled up on a soapbox without using the soapbox theme, but we have a soapbox theme. I don't know. Oh, I but I didn't like yell. I didn't like announce I was getting on the soapbox. Soap. <laughs> I didn't announce I was getting on the soapbox, nor do I need to. But I got there and um, went off a little bit. But I think you get the gist of it. You need to, if you want a unified engineering team or an agile team. Uh, you need to get out of the practice of counting work items done and features done as the sole way of measuring how much value someone has for your organization. It's like the current problem as I see it is it's um, Hawthorne's effect gone awry. You get, well, yeah, you always get what you measure. You You do, but what – what they have is that they have sort of this principle around uh, more features, right? Um, not even balance as to whether or not that feature added value or was a waste, right? The fact that you just finished the FUBAR widget feature um, and three days early, and it was a month feature and you got it three days early. Hey, way to go, Alan. Thank the you. fact that no one's using it. And it sucks. It, 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 Sure. <laughs> that may be why no one's using it, right? The, but in, in the current model, that's PM's problem. I built the requirements. I built two of the requirements, right? Whereas um, in an Agile model, uh, the, when deployed, right, it, the work's not done until you validated that it achieved the goal. Not the requirements, but the goal. Why are we building this feature? Um, I, I get that same question quite a bit. There's this concern about um, people not being able to differentiate in an agile process. People uh, not being able to scope to their to their ladder level. And how do I track these guys? How do how do I hold them accountable? I think it requires, and to me, it's just. It requires a different manager mindset, different management style than the traditional command and control bean counter management. The thing that I, I tell each and every one of them, um, I'm like, look, I'll try to argue and tell you how it works. Um, you're not going to believe me. And I, I'll say the easiest way is you try to execute it for a few months. Because the one thing that happens with the model is that you become more – 
it becomes more transparent actually how the team functions. You very clearly understand there's a, there's a couple of people who are very talented at accelerating and helping others, and you, you begin to see how that has positively affected the team, even though in the extreme they may not even have an area that they directly own. Right. Sure. The um, you, it gives you the ability to see the system and begin to measure it, and that in the system is what matters, not uh, the local optimization. Absolutely. So on my team, uh, I shouldn't call out my team. So on a team very close to mine, that <laughs> is not Alan's team. <laughs> so despite our best intentions, we ended up in sort of a feature rush. Let's get the work items done. Let's get them done by the date we said they get done. And then we'll deal with um, another term I'm not super happy with, a stabilization phase. Yeah. Where we try and test quality into the product. Or, or sorry, where we stabilize. Right. And what happens in these is... When we we find and identify and remove all the bugs that we just spent the last 48 hours adding to the product. Right, right. Yeah. So... I want to ease into a little bit more on the hero topic. And Brendan and I have talked about heroes before, and and heroes are okay. If if someone's role on the team is to be the hero, and often that can be like the super, you know, the, the super general so can I can be the hero here, I can be the hero, that's my job. I gotta go figure things out. But I think what often happens on a team where you're driving towards a feature complete deadline is you celebrate the hero who stays all weekend to get the feature done, stays all night, get the feature done. And then you celebrate that same hero again when he a month later he stays a whole weekend to fix his backlog of bugs. And is it just me, or does that seem like the wrong sort of hero celebration? It's absolutely wrong. It, we're, <laughs> we're cel- Almost a rhetorical question, but I'm glad yeah, you answered. We're celebrating um, doing what it takes to hit the date. Yeah, and and again, it goes back to what we were talking about before. Think about what is the goal. If you want to celebrate, and I'm all for publicly celebrating things on software teams, but you want to publicly celebrate the things that your team values because it encourages other people to adopt those values. If you're going to encourage hitting the date, people are going to go, yeah, I want to hit the date too. I'm going to write crummy code. But what you want to value is I want to celebrate Wow, Brent, you did a lot of work to help the team out here. You you improved our efficiency. I'm going to celebrate that publicly. I'm going to celebrate the fact that um, developer Joe or team Fubar has finished their feature and stayed at zero bugs the entire way through. I want to I want to celebrate those things, and I want to celebrate the behavior I want to encourage. Yeah. If I I don't, if that's maybe a better way to put that is I don't want to celebrate someone staying all weekend to fix a bunch of bugs they created because they were hasty in the first place, because that is not the behavior I want to encourage. I may just for morale, I make, I may say thank you to that developer in person. Say, Hey, I know you were, you were behind and under my breath, I'll think because you wrote crappy code because you're in a hurry and you were late in the first place and blah, blah, blah. It's probably not his fault, but I don't want to publicly celebrate behaviors that I do not want the rest of the team to adopt. Yes, that's correct. And I want to do the opposite. I want to. I want, if I want. If I'm a ma- if I'm a people manager again, getting my head out of work item tracking. I want to think about what are the behaviors I want my team to have, 
And then when I see examples of that, I'm going to be do a big woohoo and celebrate them because people like that. That's even that's even more motivating for people sometimes than than money or other things. Like, yeah, I want to be celebrated like that person. I'm going to do that thing too. Yes, I'm big on team values, and I and I and I think that sometimes we blow them. The in software in general and at Microsoft. Off my, off my soapbox again. I got to stop yeah, bringing the damn soapbox you know here. We got to find a way to stepwise kill the hero culture at this company. And it's pervasive. Sort of a catch-22 death spiral yeah, thing. And I think it – yeah, it is. And I, my belief is that we get it because we celebrate the wrong things. But I know you have some more thoughts. So I'm going to step off my soapbox. There's – Put my it, hand over my mouth. There is a – there, it, it reminds me of a discussion that I had with one of my um, mentees. There's a guy who I'm, I'm training to be an Agile coach. And one of the – he wanted to have a discussion around how do I – how did he take the current system and better light up empowerment that with, with some sort of the – the benefits of, of heroism, but but align it towards business goals. And we talked about uh, a process essentially similar to like the the twenty percent project that Google had has ish. Um, <clears throat> now our system that that we do we have a subjective way of measuring how well we're doing in terms of delivering ROI. Okay, so we have a, a way of sort of accounting for business value of the ticket expected and then sort of a validation process at the end, okay? And I said, well, here's an idea. What if we were to say, from here on out, we'll do 20% type of project. Now, for a typical employee, that's one day out of a five-day work week. I said, all right, here's something that I would be perfectly content with doing. I could, I could lay out a rule to my team. Hey, team, from here on out, we're going to be measuring and improving what is the, the rate at which we're providing ROI. Okay? So measure of business over cost, business value over cost. If you guys have an idea... That, and your idea is likely to exceed the general rate, meet or exceed the ROI that the team has been basically doing off of our backlog plan. You are permitted to just do it as long as it costs no more than one day to, to, to complete that effort. You, you, so as long as it costs no more than one day and it's a higher ROI, just do it. You don't even need to talk to me. If you have an idea that's going to cost more than that, then you, you have to talk to me before we do it because I want to hear those things. If there is a way that I can use my team's assets to ha- provide higher ROI, fantastic. Um, what that is beginning to do, um, when, you, when, you, when you have those type of conversations and you say business value first, uh, everything else is... is uh, some form of, of guesswork. Um, 
then it changes their behavior. They're focusing on, this is my goal, not how do I make, how do I make what I own sound cooler than it actually is and then own it so that it has the cheapest amount of effort required, right? Their goal is local optimization. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm fine with local optimization as long as you're targeting something that the business values. I would love to be able to see in the longer term, I would love to be able to see people to have a simple equation. This is how much we paid you. This is the value we got out of you. <laughs> this is, this is uh, our profit margin on you, Alan. And then if it goes too high, you're like, hey, hey it's time for a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we're a few years away, but I actually think that that's a goal that's achievable. Yeah, I think it's, you're right that those things, that ROI becomes more difficult to uh, measure in the generalist. Don't you think? You need to have a, a nice. You need to have a. Well, give me an example. It, no, ha- and then, so I'll give you an example. Thank you. Um, I I met with with my my VP uh, a couple weeks ago, and I said, top of mind, what do you think is the number one thing my new boss's org really needs to go after? And he said, e- increase operational velocity of the team. Okay, now. If you think of those terms, that essentially means he wants quality to be high for for the customer point of view, um, but he wants to sort of speed up how long it takes to go from idea to quality from an operational point of view. So this means the engineering system, this means the, the preventative gauntlet and this means the reactionary gauntlet right my 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 part in this particular problem is to help correct the customer goal now if you take those pieces and break it down further right there's there's essentially this long ass workflow and all of them would likely have their own little metric mm-hmm as well as measuring the whole system, right? The reason why his goal is harder is because there's there's probably, I don't know, I'm making things up, 20 different things that I got to consider as well as come up with a whole end-to-end measurement. How do I measure operational velocity? And then how do I prove that I increased it? So two things come to mind when you tell that story. Three things. One is, I think it's great that's a, a VP's goal. Um, I wish my VP had the same goals. I'll leave it at that. Two, uh, one of the ways I describe what I do is I'm a big fan of the lean startup. And what I do is try to improve or make more efficient the build, measure, learn loop, which yep. sounds a little bit along those same lines. It is. And then the other thing, I'm a big fan of theory of constraints. And figuring out where to optimize, where not where it, it, where there may be easy pickings, but it's not the best place to optimize. Um, looking at the system and figuring out this is the place where we need to target first, and then we do that. And and, and just watching the system change as you make tweaks to improve in different places. Like here's a thing where we take for granted takes a full day to do, but actually, do we need? To, what if we only did this much? Do we still get the same value? Ninety percent of the value in one hour instead of a full day? 
yeah, let's make that trade off. Yeah. Uh, the you're exactly right, and that's how I'm I'm approaching it. Yeah, because maybe we can get that other ten percent back somewhere else where that isn't a bottleneck. But the first thing is I have to come up with a measurement for increasing operational velocity that is agnostic to the system underneath. It. Yeah, and then drive that to be the goal everyone's going after, because what I want is the high level goal to be the goal. So I want to discourage local optimization like if someone if someone discovers hey we did this big goal we break it down into these small pieces we go this uh our ability to do deployments is the the bottleneck Mm -hmm. so they speed that up okay woohoo deployments have now shrunk to being only one percent of the cost that they originally were but what they failed to notice is that by doing that the way they did it they changed the process, and now they've made two other pieces mm-hmm. in the system three mo- three times more longer. Focus more longer. More focusing more on longer. Focusing on the end goal is really important. Look at that. Like in my case, the build measure learn loop. I want to think how. What is the cycle from? I got some feedback. I made this change. I deploy this change. I get new feedback that helps me validate or give me more information on what else to do with that change. How quickly can we do that whole loop? And that goes from everything from the from local development to our CI system to deployment to data systems and how that data is analyzed, how that gets back to the back to the developer. So there's a whole bunch of pieces in there. And it's really easy to optimize in the wrong place. But yeah. the goal is, however, that first thing. All kinds of things can happen and all kinds of different things you can measure. But if you focus on that one goal of, I want to do this, and then also taking time to step back once in a while, make sure that this is actually important and actionable. And maybe asking questions like, I'm getting way off on a tangent here, but is it possible to get too fast? Like, say, I- <laughs> let's table that for next okay, time. Okay. All right. But the, let me, let me, it's our, our time is done, but I want to add one thing to you. So that, that time through the loop is known as cycle time, okay? But sure. when I was talking about increased op- operational velocity, right? There's really two things there. Number one, this, this thing called operational velocity, which, which is its own distinct goal. But in my ability to increase it, so I want to be able to increase this operational velocity, but over time, I also want to increase my ability to increase the operational velocity, so there's this concrete KPI that I'm trying to move, and then there's this cycle time, which is sort of the speed at which I can move it. So if you think of just the term velocity, which is distance over time, it's the same thing. There's something that I'm trying to move, and there's a speed element in which it's the speed in which I'm trying to move it. I can pivot each of these things. If I could um, increase the distance of movement in the same amount of time, fantastic. If I can increase same distance, but increase the speed, also fantastic, or decrease the time. So a lot of these things are really two different things. Anyway. Wow. Anyway. I think we're out of time. I'm pretty sure we're out of time. So uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to our 20th episode. We'll be back for the big 21 soon. And our anniversary episode. Thanks, guys. Yeah, for those ha- who have been with us birthday. from the beginning. I, we can't sing the song because it's cop. we have to pay like a fee to someone. Uh, no, but. that one's uh, public domain. Is it? No, it wasn't for a long time, is it now? It, Are you sure? Yeah, it's public domain. But it's not, it's not really a right. birthday, but an anniversary. Anniversary. Right, I don't so, know a happy anniversary So song. never mind. All right, everybody. I'm not Brent. 
And I am not Alan. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.